Right, well, good morning. Um, you all have come to New Philadelphia, Ohio. The wind chill is seven degrees today. And it starts all the way back in the book of Exodus. It goes all the way back to when God took the nation of Israel, and in Exodus chapter 4, referred to the nation of Israel as his son, his firstborn. And so we can track the, the process of the journeyings of the nation of Israel as though it were one man. We saw in the book of Nehemiah that the nation of Israel, when they were regathered back to Jerusalem, build the walls and rejoice, and it says they were all, all of Israel was gathered together as one man. And like we understand in our churches, pattern on how he raises his children, then it's only smart that we cooperate with that. It's, it's smart that we plan, prayerfully plan, the activities and the steps in accordance with the steps that God has prescribed as to how he works. And so that's what we want to do. And we're going to look at these seven distinct steps in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, um, this material that I'm going to cover in about an hour, um, I teach in our church for about 12 hours. Um, I, I just completed teaching it and actually just recorded it and put it up on the LFBI website. So it is a class that's available on the LFBI website as continuing education, I think, under uh, the process of spiritual maturity. And so if you're interested in that, you can, you know, contact Sam and Lori and, and you know, watch the full meal deal. But uh, anyway, the doctrinal pattern of discipleship, 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me read, I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then we'll jump into it. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. And of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall." 
For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter lays this out for us, and I want to take just a few minutes and look at the first four verses, which is the introduction, and uh, before we kind of get into the meat of it, starting in verse number five. And the thing I really want to point out, so if you look through it, it refers to the faith, the faith, the faith. And I want to show you, look, it's, it's very clear that the faith he's talking about is saving faith. He's talking about the faith that you exercised at the moment of your salvation, the faith that brought you into your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's important. Why? Because ultimately we're going to add to our faith. And you need to understand that if we're going to add to our faith, we're not talking about some process of continuing faith of sanctifying faith, we're talking about we're adding to our salvation. You start at the basis of the foundation of Jesus Christ and salvation, and then you begin to add through these seven distinct steps and stages of spiritual growth and maturity. And so when it says unto us, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, then it says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Notice that by these great, exceeding great and precious promises, you might be partakers of the divine nature. Amen. Now, on one hand, in a, in a positional truth, in a, in a manner of analyzing our standing before the Lord, we are all partakers of the divine nature. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, right? So his nature is in you. It's the new man. But it, I want you to notice that in verse 4, it doesn't say, it's not referring to that. What it's referring to is your continual sanctification and your continual growth because I'm, I'm telling you about these exceeding great and precious promises that you might be a partaker. It means that you might not. And you might not if you don't give diligence to a, making sure that you add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, etc., etc., etc. And so... What we need to see when we look at that is, is that, wow, this is, this is the definition of the new man working through you, right? And so Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10, right? Line up one to another, saying you've put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. Ephesians 4 basically says the same thing, where it talks about putting on the new man. And so what we see is, is that this idea of being a partaker of the divine nature, really what we're talking about is the cash equivalent of spiritual maturity. Because when you get to the point where these things are developed in you and you are partaking daily, regularly, having put off the old man and his deeds and putting on the new man and walking in victory in your life, you are partaking daily of his nature. That's spiritual maturity. That's what it is. That's the theme. And so... When you walk with him, what you see is, like it says, you've escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. And that's the goal of our Christian experience. That's what God expects for us. That's what he wants for us. And so, I think in your notes, I maybe put some other Bible references in there. I'm, I'm going to just move on because those things are fairly intuitive. You can look those up and you can see that, for example, Ephesians 4.13, we looked at this on Sunday morning, until we all come to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto a perfect man. And the New Testament doesn't use the word perfect as sinless. The New Testament uses the word perfect as complete or mature. 
And so that's our goal, is to grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, right? Colossians 1.10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. That's spiritual maturity. Okay, so we got the introduction. We understand the context. We know what we're pointing towards. Now we're, I want you to understand the text. And really the meat of it all comes starting in verse number 5. And verse number 5, before we get into those seven things, you just do need to see again. And we mentioned this before, but besides this, giving all diligence. You know, you can't be slothful in this. You have to give, if you're going to grow in your walk with the Lord, if you're going to grow to full maturity, if, and by the way, God expects you to grow to full maturity. He, it, it's not okay to just say, well, you know, I got to level four and that's enough. I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, I know a guy who's only at three. Um, God desires for you to experience the fullness of him. He promises you an abundant life. And uh, like we saw yesterday salvation is a free gift thank god for that we couldn't possibly have done anything to get it but spiritual maturity is not a gift it's something you got to work for it's the reward of the inheritance and so there's work that's got to be put in and so he says look if you're going to get this thing you're going to have to give all diligence you're going to have to work at it you can't quit you need to be continuously perceived when we walk through these steps and i don't want to get ahead of myself but there's some things that you're going to have to learn, and you can only learn them through trials and tribulations. So that means that you have to apply diligence to be persistent, to continue moving forward. finished well that's why they're in that chapter all right so what we want to do is we need to add to our faith so this is going to be a stepping stone this is an additive process you need to add to your faith virtue and we're going to go through quickly sadly because of time we're going to go through quickly defining each of these things and trying to help you at least get your mind wrapped around the idea of how these things go together and so i have given a very brief definition uh, a thorough study would give you a more comprehensive definition. But virtue, we're going to define as doing what you know to do. How about that? Uh, oh, and stopping doing the things that you know you ought to stop doing. Um, that's what virtue is. Virtue is all about responding properly to the light that you have. That, that's what virtue is. And uh, if you took some time and did the word study, and in the longer version of this, I give you the word study. And, uh, but the word virtuous only appears three times. In your Bible. So you've got Proverbs chapter 12, Proverbs chapter 31, the virtuous woman, right? And then you've got Ruth, who's the only woman who explicitly is called a virtuous woman. Then the word virtue appears only seven times in the entire Bible, three of which are in this passage because it repeats it over and over. Okay, so three of them are here. Then there's three of them that come out of the Gospels Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 6, and Luke chapter 8. Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8 is the repeat of the same story where the woman has the issue of blood and there's a crowd around Jesus Christ and she reaches in and she touches the hem of his garment and Jesus stops and he turns to his disciples and he says, wait a minute, who touched me? And they said, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. Everybody's banging into each other. We're in a crowd here. And he says, no, I, I, I know that virtue went out of me. And sometimes you read that and you think, well, that's weird. 
Well, it's because virtue can also be understood or translated as power or strength or valor and some of those kind of things that carry the same meaning. Jesus said, look, I, I, I perceive that power has gone out of me because she approached me with faith and, and needing help and knowing that I was the only one in her desperation that could help her. And so power was the response that came out of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 8 is the thing that says, the list of things, if there be any virtue, for example, think on these things. Okay, so virtue is basically just doing what you're supposed to do. And it is the most immediate reaction to a life that has been changed by the power and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As soon as you got saved, think back to the time when you got saved. As soon as you got, especially if you were an adult when you got saved like I was, likely, likely, you immediately stopped doing some things, right? Uh, Brother Gary Haskell was up here and talking about some of his habits before he got saved. I sadly had similar habits, bad habits, before I got saved. I was 22 years old, and, you know, in the world's eyes, I was okay, I guess. But I did what teenagers and young adults, back in the 70s and, and 80s, did without Jesus Christ means I got, a lot, got in a lot of trouble, did a lot of stupid stuff. Okay, when I got saved, I've said this before, I, I'd never been in church. I got saved the first time I ever heard the gospel. I, I didn't know, you know, you know the thing. I didn't know Old Testament from New Testament. I thought Job was Job. I, I, all that's true. I didn't know. I never heard of Moses, never heard of the rainbow in the sky. I didn't know why that happened. I never heard of Abraham. I didn't grow up in Sunday school, didn't know anything. I just heard the story of Jesus Christ, and the guy said, if you'll receive him, you want eternal life, you receive him now. I said, man, yeah, I want to receive him. I did. I didn't know anything, but I knew some things. I knew smoking dope was wrong, and I had to stop that. I, in fact, crazy as it sounds, Brother Gary was talking about this, but I have a similar experience. As soon as I got saved, I was in the, the student center on the campus of Arkansas State University, and, and I got saved, and I, and I was, man, I was excited. And I was so excited, I went and did the only thing I knew how to do. I went back to my dorm room to celebrate. <laughs> and so I went in my dorm room, and I rolled up a towel and stuck it under the crack of the door. You guys, some of you know what I'm talking about. Went to my stereo and put on my favorite album, Black Sabbath. Heaven and Hell was the album, where it had the album cover was two angels smoking and playing cards, and listen to some songs while, you know, I roll up a joint and celebrate. And I'm sitting there doing this, listening for the first time, the Holy Spirit opens my ears to hear the words of the songs I'm listening to, and I started to lose control of my facilities because of the drug, and for the first time in my life, I was like, what am I doing? This is crazy. This is the weirdest thing in the world. You know what that is? As, as, that's a true story. I, I'm, you know, go tell it if you want to. I, I don't even care. Um, that's virtue. It's virtuous that I didn't like getting high after I was saved. How about that? That's a, that's a low bar. So you're probably doing okay. Here's the idea. I didn't know anything about anything. But I knew there was some stuff that was wrong. 
I knew that the manner of speech that I was accustomed to the words coming out of my mouth were wrong. I knew that. There were some things I knew were wrong. And so I needed to stop some of the things that needed to be stopped. Oh, and you know what else I just knew instinctively? Man, this thing about Jesus I don't know anything about. I better, I, man, I want to hang around with Jesus people. And, and let me tell you something. I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't know nothing about Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopal. I didn't know anything. I just knew that if somebody said the name Jesus, I was there on the campus. And so there was all kind of different groups. Man, you're Assembly of God. I want to assemble with God. I'm there. You're the Church of Christ. I want to be in church with Christ. I'm with you, man. I was going everywhere. You know what that is? That's virtue. I was stupid, but that was virtue. God protected me. God led me to a place where people believed the Bible and taught it right. That's virtue. That's what God expects. The very first thing you expect in the growth and the life of an individual is virtue. They don't have to know anything. If you've been breathing, you know there's some stuff you just ought to be doing. And you know there's some stuff you ought to stop doing. I'd read my Bible and hang out with Christian guys. And no, Listen, man, it always bugs me. It bugs me to this day. I've been saved for over 30 years now. It just bugs me how it is that some people just can't seem to get out of bed and come to church. I mean, nobody had to do that to me. I promise you, I was, I was a single weird kid. And when Sunday was coming around, I was up early. I could not wait to go be with God's people. I didn't even know what I knew. I just knew that's where I wanted to be. That's virtue. That's what it is. And so, what are we trying to learn? Well, that's the very first thing that you should expect to see in the life of a true born-again believer. How many times have you guys prayed a prayer of salvation, leading a guy to the Lord, he prays the prayer, and it's like pulling teeth to get him to do anything? Well, you know, again, it's above my pay grade. I don't know if he really meant it, but I'm skeptical. I'm not adding those works to your salvation. Don't get me wrong, but man, if you don't have any, I mean, what happened in there? I don't know. It's hard to tell. So a true follower of Jesus Christ will love and value the things that Jesus Christ loves and values, right? And so what are those things that Jesus Christ loves and values? Well, this would be the point where when I teach this class, we branch off and go to the 23 character qualities that are required of a bishop in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And you say, well, why do you go there? Because those are prerequisites for a pastor or a bishop. Those are the things that are our checklist before we ordain a man and to give a ministry responsibility, which is a, which is a higher level of maturity. Why, why would you go there? Well, because, because they are prerequisites for a man who is going to be an ordained leader of men. Well, without a doubt, it then becomes the standard for everybody. That's the target we're growing towards. So the thing that we expect every believer to respond to all 23 of those character qualities, right? And so you've studied them. I don't have the time to go through the list with you, but if we summarize them with one, it would be the first one, blameless. Which obviously doesn't mean that nobody ever blames you. I am currently in a situation where I am being blamed quite a bit. We have some trouble in River City, you know, and it's all Jeff's fault. Well, the issue is, is it truly my fault? The issue is, am I rightly blamed? Well, we should be blameless. We should be above reproach. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality. By the way, you guys are doing a great job, the given to hospitality thing, really. No kidding. Thank you. It's been awesome. 
not given to wine, no striker. These are the things Jesus loved. This is the kind of thing we should see, right? This is what we should expect from people that are virtuous. Not soon angry. Well, that was a big one for me. I, 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 was, an, I was an angry young man. I know you'd never know it now. Why are you laughing? I'm, I'm offended. Um, the, the greatest testimony for my mother, shortly after I got saved, my father passed away at the time within weeks of when I got saved, 1983. And I went home frequently to be with my mother. And, um, you know, I, just, I was just kind of a short-tempered dude. My dad was like that. And one day, within months or whatever, after I got saved, I was changing the oil on my car or something like that. I don't remember exactly what. But it was one of those deals where you're trying to loosen a, a nut or something and the wrench slips and you crack your knuckles. And guys, man, that's, that's a bad minute. Okay, so in the old day, the old Jeff would have, you know, cussed up a, you know, a blue streak and thrown the wrench across. You know, I would have done all that. And so I cracked my knuckles and just kind of screamed because it hurt. My mom was in the front yard and she was like, I mean, she was like hiding, you know. And I came out and I came out from under, you know, the bottom of the car and, and I was laughing. I was just laughing. I was like, that was stupid. And I, I, that was just my reaction. It was my new life. And my mom was like, what happened to you? And I didn't even know I knew enough to tell her what happened to me. I said, I don't know. I hit my knuckles. But, but later on, she said, man, that, I knew something happened to you. I knew you were different. And so if we associate these with what we learned yesterday, virtue is associated with repentance, Right? in the seven stages of spiritual growth. Because to repent is to change your mind about things. And when you really change your mind about something, it becomes natural for you to act accordingly. Right? So, this is why virtue is on the list. That's why it's first. It's the first thing you add to your faith. And the next thing is knowledge. I'm embarrassed giving you a definition of knowledge. Just learning stuff. Right? But I do want to point out to you, because at this point, if it really, if you get nothing else, you need to get this. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, saving faith, the first step, virtue. And to virtue, you add knowledge. It does not say, add to your faith knowledge. Boy, if ever there's been an error... Let me just be personal. I have made this error many, many times. You get a new convert, and the very first thing you want to do is pump them with Bible study. And I'm all, man, they need the Bible. But ultimately, we're talking about this. It's a discipleship conference. And we're talking about making disciples. And Timothy is to teach what kind of men? Faithful men. How about we say virtuous? Because you add to your faith virtue. And then you begin to teach knowledge to people who have demonstrated virtue. Because when you begin to teach knowledge to people who haven't demonstrated virtue, have you ever noticed what kind of monsters they turn into? I know this from firsthand experience. 
we create monsters. And when I first began our ministry in Albania, thank the Lord, it was a wonderful sliver of time in history that I was privileged to be a part of when the country was fresh and new and opened and many, many people were getting saved. And I did what I knew to do. I just gathered them together and preached my guts out. And, and they were learning a lot of knowledge. And man, they were taking their newfound sword and going out and killing people with it. And I had to repent and devise a way to better help them grow which included demonstrating some faithfulness and virtue first before we just immediately open up their brain and pour down a bunch of information. Because doesn't the Bible say that knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies? That's somewhere in my notes. I should get to it eventually. Briefly, I, I don't mind if I don't stick to my notes because you got stuff written down. You can read. But God is the source of all truth. I think you know this. I, I would just point out the very first mention in your Bible, kind of a key rule, right, is Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9 where we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, who made that tree? Well, God made that tree. God is the source of all knowledge and truth and understanding. Of course, we know that. Proverbs 2, 6, the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Psalm 119.66, teach me good judgment and knowledge. God is the one who does that, right? And how does he do that? Well, there's an objective nature of God's truth. In other words, it's a written standard. John 17.17, 17, right? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So it's written. It's objective. It's not subjective to your experiences. It's not just a dream or a vision. It's not just a spoken word that hopefully you remember right, because you won't remember it right. It's written down. You can go back and you can check, it up, check up on it over and over and over again and it's not going to change. So God's word, the Bible, is the source, the objective source of all truth. Proverbs 22, verses 20 and 21. This is kind of the theme for our certainty conference every year. Have not I written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge, right? That we might know the certainty of the words of truth. Well, God says, look, I've written to you. I've written them. It doesn't say, haven't I spoken to you? I've written to you so that you can get some knowledge, right? So the second point is, is that it's our duty to study it. So 2 Timothy 2.15. You have to be diligent. You have to study. You're called a workman because it's hard work, right? And it's the only way that you can be approved before the Lord. So you're going to add to your virtue knowledge, but the way you're going to get the knowledge is by studying the Bible. That's how you're going to get it, right? And God is so gracious. God is so kind because he gives us gifts of teachers. He brings teachers into our lives that are anointed, teachers that have a supernatural gift of God to be able to take the scriptures and help us understand. And we saw yesterday that the children of Israel in the wilderness, they had the manna delivered at their tent flap every day. They just had to go get some. It was just spoon-fed to them. But when they crossed into maturity in the promised land, the manna ceased. And they had to go out and get their own food. Like a mature Christian ultimately doesn't need to be spoon-fed all the time. You can go out and get your own food. I mean, the land of milk and honey, man, it's just everywhere, right? I mean, when there's no shortage of food here. You ought to be able to go and get you some. And so the Lord, you know, he, he nevertheless, I mean, I, 
I'd still learn from teachers. I'm not embarrassed to say. I'm thrilled to hear from you all and to learn things that you have. That's fine. These are just ways that God provides for us, right? And so it's a spiritual gift. It's one of the list of the gifts that God offers. But what I really want to emphasize to you this morning and what I hope that you'll get is what I'm calling the morality connection. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 7, the Bible says that there's some people who will be ever learning and yet, for some reason, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And, and that, you know, that troubles me. It troubles me that people can give their heart and life and, and time and schedule to learn and study and learn and study and learn and study and somehow never get it. You know, we, well, in my neck of the woods, you know, if you, you have to enjoy sarcasm. If, you know, if you don't enjoy, it's just, it is kind of a spiritual gift. Small s. But it's awesome. Okay, so, you know, we might, you know, the Jeff Bartell paraphrase might refer to that as, some people are just educated beyond their intelligence. That's just the way I think of it. Ever learning. They just never seem to get it. Well, why is that? Well, I think Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5, to virtue knowledge. John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We emphasize the thy word is truth thing like crazy. Do we forget the sanctify part? Sanctify. Why are you getting that? Why do you have the word to get you the truth so that you can be sanctified? Why is he yelling? I don't know. The dangerous balance is that you don't add it to virtue. You just add it to your faith. And then I already referred to 1 Corinthians 8, that knowledge puffs up and charity edifies. And it goes on in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 8, and I do love verse 3 where it says, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. The same is known of him. And so I always challenge people with this question. What do people think of when they think of you? It's a good question to ask yourself. What do people think of when they think of me? Well, he's a nice guy. Well, that's good. I hope so. Um, you know, once upon a time, they might have said, he's a good golfer. Not anymore. Uh, maybe he's this, maybe he's that. But do they say, he loves God? That guy loves God. When they think of you, do they think, if any man love God, it's, it should be known. It should, how are they going to know? Well, you're probably living it, Right? But lacking knowledge, that is a real problem. You have to, you have, don't be afraid of knowledge. You need it. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for what? A lack of knowledge. They don't even know what to do. For I bear the zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. They go about their own righteousness. They ignore the fact that Christ already provided the righteousness. Man, I just lack guys zealous for the Lord. Okay, it's good. Does he know what he's doing? If he doesn't know what he's doing, the zeal, that's, you're like Old Testament Israel. You have a zeal. Well, there's a lot of zealots out there. A lot of them have weapons, right? We, I mean, 
We have homeland security for people who are zealots. I mean, we're worried about some of those guys. I mean, zeal isn't enough. So you've got to have the knowledge and it's got to be added to virtue. Well, once you have demonstrated virtue and you're growing and you need more understanding, do with well if it's moderation ultimately i like to phrase it this way i think it helps people it's about making good choices because now that you have knowledge you need to begin to make specific choices right what am i going to do with all this knowledge not just living it out we've kind of already covered that but ultimately we're comparing this with these seven stages of spiritual growth and of course enlightenment or illumination that is knowledge that's a direct correlation that's very obvious but the third stage in the life of christ and the life of israel is they're beginning to participate in ministry they're beginning to go out and do things on their own well that's associated with temperance why because now i've got all this information i have to find an outlet for it i've got to find a way to live it out and to work it out into into my ministry i've got to have some ministry opportunities well in your church there's a lot of ministry opportunities are you going to work with the children? Are you going to work with the younger youth? You're going to work with older youth? You're going to work with young adults? You're going to work with older adults? You're going to do outreach in the community? You're going to do addiction recovery? Are you going to work with a ladies' ministry? Are you going to do, you know, uh, good news clubs in the, in the schools? I mean, our church does all this kind of stuff. We work in the homeless shelters. We're working in the battered women's shelters. Uh, we help out in the local hospice. There's so many ways and things that you can get involved in. And you know what? You couldn't possibly do them all. We have a young man in our church right now, and he is so zealous. That I don't even want to take time to talk about it. He's a wonderful, wonderful young man who got saved out of the jail. 20 years old, maybe 19. He, he was in jail, and we led him to the Lord. And he, and he just changed. I mean, his life, it was one of the most dramatic darkness to light conversions. And this guy is on fire for the Lord. He is at the stage of life right now where he desperately needs temperance. He's going a mile a minute in every direction. And if anybody says anything about Jesus or the Bible, he's there. And as a result, he can't be effective in any one of them because he's trying to do all of them. He has virtue. He has turned his back on his old life and his old friends. He has knowledge. He is a student of the word. He's completing our discipleship. He's about to enter into Living Faith Bible what he is going to do. Oh, most importantly, what he's not going to do. Because he wants it all, and he wants it now. Well, that's the attitude of somebody who's young in the faith and still growing. Thank God for him. What a great attitude. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25, for example, we'll jump to that. It says, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we... An incorruptible. What is the incorruptible crown for somebody in the Christian life, the race of Christianity, that is striving for the mastery? Well, I propose to you it's spiritual maturity. It's the crown of achieving full spiritual maturity. Why? I'm striving for mastery 
Mastery of what? Of my walk with the Lord. And if you're going to have that, you have to be temperate. Right? So that's what athletes do, right? They strive, the, the correlation is with athletics. So an athlete strives for the mastery. If you're going to be a world-class sprinter in track and field, well, you have to be temperate in your diet. You have to be temperate in all, and oh, and by the way, you're not going to spend a lot of time, you know, playing basketball or whatever. You've given up a whole bunch of other sporting activities in order to be really good at running, for example. So temperance is, man, and so, oh, by the way, and by making choices to zone in on one or two things in ministry, does that limit your effectiveness? No, it enhances your effectiveness. Because now I can focus all of my understanding on being really effective on what I am doing, and I don't have to concern myself with the things that I'm not doing. Temperance is about making choices to the exclusion of other choices. And it's for your benefit. It's for, it's for better fruitfulness. That's what it's for. When you get to the point in your life and you're ready to get married and, and you, you just know this is the one and, and you select one woman to be your wife for the rest of your life, you effectively are saying no to everyone else. You are, let me clarify ladies, you are literally saying no <laughs> to everyone else. Does that limit your joy? No, it enhances your joy, right? Is your life, you know, somehow compromised because, you know, I only got one woman? No, it's better that way. And so temperance is associated with ministry participation because you have to make the choices to put yourself in a place where you can really hone in on, listen, I know it's not, you know, just obvious by, you know, physical presentation, but one of the few recreational activities that I enjoy is riding a bicycle. I used to do it more, and I was thinner. Um, I still enjoy doing it. Once upon a time, I used to enjoy playing basketball. My knees and my feet don't let me enjoy that anymore. Um, I enjoy riding a bicycle. So I don't do archery, uh, I don't bungee jump, I don't parasail, I don't play softball, I don't do a lot of things, but I ride a bicycle and I play golf, that's, that's just my thing. I don't do it a lot, but when I do it, that's what I do. Boy, you're really limited. No, you know what, you know what I've done? I've, I'm into cycling, so I know about equipment. I'm, I hooked up with a group in our local county that goes out and rides, rides throughout the week. I have camaraderie and friendship and fellowship with these guys that we ride, you know, 30, 40, 50, 80 miles at a time or whatever. I mean, we, man, I, my life is richer because I've chosen one or two things to do and not spread myself so thin I can't enjoy anything. So you add to your faith virtue and you add to virtue knowledge and you add to knowledge temperance. You add to knowledge temperance. And then you add to temperance patience. And so patience, you know, I think everybody thinks they understand it, right? Being patient, long-suffering. 
I threw in Webster's Dictionary, 1828, right? So suffering of afflictions, pain, toil, calamity, provocation, or other evil. I like this definition. With a calm, unruffled temper. Oh, that's tough. I think Webster nailed it. So you're going through life, and life is hard. But you're not letting it shake you. That's patience. That's what patience is. Not, everybody knows, right? Not a difficult word to understand. A difficult principle to apply. And so, biblically, patience is associated with tribulation. So in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 3, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. How do I get, you know this, you know, you know the whole the old joke, you know, pray for patience and trouble's coming, right? How's God, God's not just going to sprinkle the magic fairy dust of patience on you. He's going to teach you patience by putting you in a situation where you need to exercise it. So life's going to start falling apart, you know, so buckle up. But you'll learn patience if you hang in there because that's what tribulation does. Tribulation works patience, right? So we see it over and over again. Romans 12, 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Tribulation works patience. Revelation chapter 14 and verse number 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You say, where do you get this? Well, the context of Romans 14 is the tribulation. The people alive that he's talking about in Romans 14 are people living through the great tribulation. And what does God point out as the thing to brag about him? It's the patience of the saints. So tribulation is the thing that brings patience, but patience brings something else, and that's hope, right? Because just as patience and tribulation are associated with each other in the Scripture, patience and hope are associated with each other in the Scriptures. So in Romans 8, 20, well, we go back to Romans 5. I didn't finish reading it. Romans 5 then says, we glory in tribulations. Tribulation works patience. Patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. But Romans 8.25, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And you know the biblical definition of hope, right? The biblical definition of hope is the, the expectation of something that is still yet future. It's a sure thing. It just hasn't happened yet. So we anticipate, we have the hope, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hope is not, hey, I'm not sure if it's going to happen, but I hope so. Hope is it's absolutely going to happen. It just hadn't happened yet. So because I know it's absolutely going to happen and it hasn't happened yet, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. Um... You know, I, I have hinted at how, you know, I'm going through a real trial right now and, and we've had a split in our church and we had to discipline four men out and the source behind it are two staff members and, and there's active, intentional, you know, recruiting going on behind the scenes of these men going and meeting with people in our church and trying to turn them against me specifically and our church as a whole and, and all these kind of things. It's evil. It's awful. And I'm in the middle of it right now. Well, what are you going to do? Well, it depends on 
how I'm walking with the Lord, how I'll answer that question. Right? I mean, when I'm just looking around the world, you know, I want to hurt them. That's what I want to do. But when I spend time with the Lord, what am I going to do? I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. Because there are some sure things that are going to happen. God will reward the right attitude and response if I will do that. Oh, by the way, God will reward the wrong attitude and response eventually too. I might want it to happen now, but that's where God's ready to do it. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. So that's a sure thing one way or another, right? So I can be patient. I can wait. Romans 15, 4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So it's patience that brings hope. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. So in the context of your spiritual growth and maturity in the context of your continuing to grow in your walk with the lord you add to your faith virtue and you start demonstrating this repentant attitude you add to your virtue knowledge and you begin to get enlightened by the word of god as you understand more things you add to knowledge temperance because then you begin to hone in and make choices and actually apply and get involved in ministry and you add to temperance patience because while you begin to get involved in ministry, guys, guess what happens? Life happens. And life is in an evil, sin-stained world that is called this present evil world that's controlled, set on course by the devil, and the devil is trying to stop you from winning other people to Jesus Christ. And so he's going to bring tribulation in your life because he can't do anything with you. You're already saved. But he can stop you from winning other people, and he's going to try. And so when you get involved in ministry... You're the fish swimming against the grain, swimming upstream. Everything's coming at you fast, right? You've experienced that, and your people are experiencing that. And when it gets bad, and when it gets hard, and when it gets tough, they need to have patience so that they can then ultimately develop into future leaders. And that's the stage it's associated with. Because while you're ministering, man, it starts getting hard, and the guy through it all with the hope of the end. That's the guy you want to keep your eyes on to begin to train into leadership. You, you can't just throw novices into leadership. It will not only damage the novice, the, well the young man I mentioned in my church, well-intending, just not ready. Man, it will damage all the poor people that end up getting lined up behind because he won't know what he, he will not have learned the lessons and spent the time growing enough to have the patience to be able to wait and not just react like I want to react in my flesh. That's maturity. It takes time to get that. Life is the vehicle for tribulation. John 16, 33, Jesus said to his disciples, these things I've spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. Oh, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But buckle up, it's coming. In the world, guess what's waiting for you? Tribulation. That's what's waiting for you. But thank the Lord. Man, the word of God is sweet, right? James chapter one, 
Verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that's some hope. Knowing this, the trying of your faith works patience. Works patience. I don't know what you're going through. You could be going through things that make my trial seem like it's nothing. You may be going through something that's relatively normal. I don't know what you're going through. But if it hasn't happened to you recently, it's probably on the list that's coming your way. Because if you're alive and breathing, naming the name of Jesus and attempting to tell other people about it, life's going to come at you fast. And something's going to hit you. And God is watching. He's here to help you. He's not just an observer. But he wants to see if you will trust him. Tribulation brings the opportunity to respond with patience, which happens because you have vision of the future for hope, and you respond properly, biblically, through all those things. That's maturity. That's leadership development. 2 Corinthians 6.4, but in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience in afflictions and necessities and distresses. So you've already been ministering. You're ministers of God. But now you're approving yourself as a minister because you've gone through tough times, necessities, afflictions, and you've done it with patience. And so we read James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the trying of your faith works patience. The next verse says, but let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, spiritually mature, wanting nothing. That word wanting means lacking nothing. There's nothing lacking. The Lord is all I need. So the next level is godliness. And you can't possibly have godliness until you first already have achieved virtue, knowledge, temperance and patience you think you're working godliness in step number two and it's not happening that's not how our heavenly father raises his children that's not how he does it so what is godliness well the kind of a play on the words that's easy to remember godlikeness right that stuff up there godlikeness um it's okay I'm going to give you some other shots at definitions based on the Revelation as we walk through this section. When I studied this out to develop this class, this point, this definition, this word, for me, was the most misunderstood word previously in my understanding. I thought godliness was one thing going in, and thank the Lord, through the study of the Scripture, learned that it is something else. And so maybe this will be a help to you. So I would give maybe a redefined, we'll, we'll, re, we'll refine the definition. Because what godliness is not is virtue. People think godliness is doing right. Well, that's a godly man, you know, he's doing right, he did the right thing, he's godly. But godliness can't be doing right because virtue is doing right. So godliness doesn't need to be virtue because virtue is virtue. How about that? How about that? Sorry. Okay. 
I can, I'm sorry. It's really bad. The older guys are like, I don't know what he's talking about. Okay. Okay, so in your notes it says, it's not doing something right, it's being something right. And that is the issue. Virtue is doing something right. In other words, anybody can, you know, nail it once or twice, right? The blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. I mean, you can, you can make a right choice, you know, at any given moment in your life. But when you make the right choice again and again and again and again and again, and it becomes the pattern of your life all the time, you're godly. You're godlike. So let's look at some of the references. I couldn't give you all of them. I gave you some of the most predominant ones. First Timothy 2.2. So we're praying, right? And what are we praying for? For kings and for all that are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now, I think that's significant. Godliness is not honesty per se, obviously. Honesty is not godliness. They're different words. They're put together. They mean different things. But they are grouped together. And I think they're grouped together intentionally, of course, with a specific reason. And there may be a lot of reasons. But the one that I see that I think is important is basically what I wrote down here. Godliness is to virtue as honesty is to telling the truth. In other words... Anybody can tell the truth. Somebody asks you a question, you can tell the truth or you can lie. You, you, can, be on, you, can, you can do the right thing and, and you know, answer it honestly, you can answer it truthfully or not. But if you consistently and regularly are truthful in your communication over time and it becomes the habit of your life to be truthful regularly, consistently, you earn the title of an honest person man. And if you have earned the title of an honest man and you blow it once and you misspeak, you may not lose the title. But if you tell a lie, oh, and frequently then again and again, well, it's not going to take very long before nobody's going to acknowledge you as honest anymore. Well, similarly, you can make good choices and do the right thing in your life. But when you do them again and again and again, you earn the right for the testimony of godliness. And you may blow it one day, and you may not necessarily lose that testimony. But you start blowing it consistently, and nobody thinks you're godly anymore. Because godliness is to virtue as honesty is to telling the truth. That's an understanding of godliness. 1 Timothy 3.16 and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. We understand that that's ultimately referring to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. God was manifest in the flesh. We get that. So we're not talking about that right now. I'm going to make a very practical, personal application in understanding the word godliness. First of all, I find it interesting that it says, great is this mystery well, on a practical level of understanding godliness as the fifth stage of spiritual growth and development, maybe it's a great mystery because there's so few people who actually achieve it. Maybe we look around society of Christendom and we say, when I hear about this godliness thing, 
I haven't seen much of it. It's kind of mysterious. God manifest in your flesh is when you're consistently and regularly not just doing something right, but you're being something right. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy's got this thing nailed. But refuse profane and old wives' fables unto godliness. And here's the comparison. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So the comparison once again is with exercise and physical discipline. And so I call godliness spiritual fitness. It's spiritual fitness. Just like physical fitness is the result of continued, regular, consistent, temperate, right, physical exercise. When you work out and you eat right and you're temperate and you watch the things and you train and you do that, you achieve physical fitness. And you can potentially lose physical fitness. I had physical fitness once. It's not something that you achieve, you check it off your list, and you say, that's done, set it aside. I've got that already. I had it. I lost it. I quit eating right. I quit working out. I started gaining weight, and stuff hurts all the time. Well, godliness is the spiritual version of that. Exercise yourself regularly, having a good, balanced diet, and working it out in activity, and keeping it up all the time. The guys who are physically fit do occasionally wake up in the morning and say, I just don't want to go to the gym today. But they do anyway. A person who is godly might wake up and say, you know, I just don't want to read my Bible today. But they do anyway. Because it's good for them. It's the right thing to do. I need some food, man. I mean, the time to tune the instruments is before the concert, not after. Get up in the morning and do it, right? 1 Timothy 6, chapter 6, verse 3. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the doctrine, which is according to godliness, he's proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. So they got that twisted. I got a lot of stuff, therefore God must be blessing me. From such withdraw thyself. But here's, here's, here's where we're landing. Godliness with contentment. Now that's great gain. I would call it true success. You want to be successful in your life? Strive to be godly. If you have a godly life, you got it. If you're content and happy to have a content, godly, consistent, well-being, spiritual fitness, walking with God, regardless of the circumstances of this life, you, my friend, are a success. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse number 5, almost in a form of a warning, because it talks about people who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. You're to avoid those people. So it is possible, right? that you can have the form. Godliness has a form. The fact that it, he said that is that godliness has a, there is a form, there's something that it looks like because you're being something right. So there's a form of it. But there are those 
who deny the power thereof. So in other words, there's no real substance. It's just a form. So the fear, right, the fear is of the legalism that you try and legislate some sort of righteousness from the outside in. That never works. It has to be from the inside out. And when it comes from the inside out, there will be a form that is manifest that people can actually see and recognize. And there's nothing wrong with that. It should be that way. But it has real power because it's actually in substance internalized in your life. But there will be those who are fakes. There will be those who just look good. Remember the Pharisees? Right? They're whitewashed. But they're sepulchers. They're full of dead man's bones. And so that's not what the Lord intends. People aren't always what they seem. This is the lesson I'm learning. People aren't always what they seem. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever listened to a man of God preach or teach some truth? And you've heard it before. But this time, it just had power. You ever experienced that? Probably not right now, but other times. Matthew 7, 28 and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority or power, not as the scribes. So, as a teacher, when you teach from your mind, you can reach people's minds. When you teach from your heart, you can reach people's hearts. And when you teach from your life, you can reach people's lives. When you teach from your life, that's because there's godliness. You are somebody that isn't you. <laughs> it's the Lord in you. So I think I have in your notes something about substance breeds power while the form alone can be empty. Maybe it's not in your notes. I don't know. Good for you. Okay. Um, let me move on. Oh, I'll just give you this one. 2 Peter 3.11, this is good. Seeing that all things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Just reinforcing godliness is being something. It's not just doing something. So what manner of persons? It has to do with the manner of person that you are, not just the things that you do. So godliness is associated with reevaluation and consecration in these seven stages of spiritual growth. When faced with the ultimate trial of going all in for the Lord, and if you succeed through that trial, you develop this lifestyle of sustained virtue. You develop it as a lifestyle. You, 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 you have fully surrendered. You have truly experienced what it means to live a crucified life. You have, you have actually died to yourself. Paul said, I die daily, 1 Corinthians 15. Galatians chapter 2 says that I am crucified with, not I was crucified with Christ, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So, if you get to that point and you are test and you will be tested and you get to the point where you have the only way to survive is to die and you release it to the lord and you say i'm not fighting anymore 
I don't understand what you're doing. I don't know what's going on. I give it all to you. I surrender. I'm nothing anyway. But whatever it is, I'm not going to just do something stupid. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to run. I'm just going to surrender it to you and say, Lord, whatever, here it is. Then you pass. By the way, you can't manufacture that. You can't just say those words and think you're faking God out. Good luck with that. But this is the step in your growth process where there's no turning back. Because you're not you anymore. It's Christ in you. You're a different person now. So the last two are fairly intuitive, and I'm not going to go through the list of verses, but brotherly kindness and charity, let me try and just give you a summary, and you can look up those verses. Listen, you, you get it. Brotherly kindness is the only place that the word Philadelphia is translated brotherly kindness. Typically, it's brotherly love, right? Love of the brethren, that sort of thing. And you have some of those references in your notes. But the idea is this. Loving the brethren, that would be associated with actual leadership responsibility. Once you pass the trial and become who Christ needs you to become, not you anymore, but him, now you can be trusted with genuine responsibility of other believers because you have proven that it's not about you anymore. You're not going to manipulate other people for some self-serving gain. You are dead and just want Christ to work through you to help others. And so brotherly kindness, or if you want to just say brotherly love as opposed to charity or love, right? The difference is the qualifier, brotherly, right? So charity is the last one. Charity is the highest love. Why? Because that's love for God so loved the world, right? And, you know, even a Calvinist ought to know that that can't be the world of the elect because then it would be brotherly love again, right? For God so loved the brother. No, he loved the world. So that's the higher love, so brotherly love. So why is brotherly love associated with the real responsibility in ministry leadership? Because you are leading brothers who sometimes aren't lovable. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, I mean, sheep, you know, can be dirty animals. And they're not the brightest critters. And... God has called you to lead them as a father. And to lead them as a father, as a good father, you better love them. And they're hard to love sometimes. And and my personal current challenge, for example, would be, I look at the faces of men that I trusted deeply that have now turned on me and hurt me deeply and are attacking my family They've attacked, my, they've attacked my physical family, verbally, and my spiritual family. And I look out, and my natural tendency is to say, you guys look pretty good, and you've proven you're not. And then what I, what I think of doing is looking at the other guys who had nothing to do with this and say, you look, you look pretty good too. Um, now I'm kind of worried about you because I'm not sure I trust anybody anymore and the walls are going to go up. But I'm not going to be a responsible leader if I can't love them. I'm not going to be. So I have to do what Paul said, I die daily. 
I got to die to myself or it's not going to happen. And so the last level is charity, which ultimately is that sacrificial love. It is the thing that associates itself with the last level of a world vision. And that's the idea that, man, you're to love your enemies, you're to go into all the world and win people to Jesus Christ. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And yet, God so loved the world. (laughs) Well, obviously, the context is different. You're not to love the things in the world such that you lust after them, but you are to have this compassionate, sacrificial love to win them to Jesus, of course. And so we have the seven levels, and I put it in a little chart for you just to compare them side by side. From the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we defined them yesterday, to the doctrinal basis coming out of 2 Peter chapter 1 side by side. And once you reach this final level, your life is no longer your own. You exist solely for the fulfillment of God's mission. You no longer consider any impact on your personal life when God leads you to action because you are crucified with Christ and the only thing that motivates you is bearing fruit for God's kingdom. Now, we don't have time The people that were here at Oakland Heights, I taught on Sunday morning, verses 8 to 14, and I would encourage you just to read back through verses 8 to 11, 13, 14, and there are definite benefits. If you will do these things, it says in 2 Peter, for example, if these things be in you, and about what are these things, those seven things you add to your faith, if these things be in you and abound, then you'll never be barren or unfruitful. That's awesome, right? I mean, you'll have fruit in your life, and the fruit is in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But if you lack these things, it says you're blind, and you can't see afar off. So that means if you have these things, you're not blind. You have vision. You can see afar off. You can see into the future. You have a vision for what's coming. It says you'll never fall. You'll, You'll have stability in your walk with the Lord and never have this roller coaster experience ever again. And ultimately have this amazing reward waiting for you in heaven. Because in verse 11, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you. Here's the word, abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if anybody here would say, I don't want any of that stuff. We've got a sign-up sheet in the back. I want to know who doesn't want any of that stuff. That sheet will be empty. Nobody, Nobody doesn't want that stuff. Everybody wants that. Well, God tells you how to get it. If these things be in you and abound, continue to grow. Wherever you're at in this process, wherever you find yourself, identify it honestly, even if it's not where you think you thought you should be, and then work at making sure you get the next one, and then the next one, and never stop until Jesus comes. And then all this cool stuff is added unto you, which, oh, by the way, Jesus said, I came that you might have life. And have it abundantly. That's Christianity. We're done. Let me pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you so much for giving us the direction. How would we know? We'd be guessing. It'd be my opinion, somebody else's opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. We don't care about our opinions. We care about your word. Thank you for loving us. I pray it should bless the hearing and the understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.